Growing up, I will uh, tell you that I was a very insecure kid for quite a number of years. Uh, that is not in any way, let me make clear, not in any way the fault of my upbringing and the fault of my parents, the fault of the household I grew up in. Had a whole lot more to do with just a constant experiences of rejection by the, my peers, by those around me, and then, of course, just that natural desire that most any of us have to be accepted, to fit in. And then all that coupled with just cluelessness as to how to do that. And so that kind of left me awash uh, at times and uh, hurting at, at times, just to say the least. I, I can remember, oddly enough, one of the most um, poignant, uh, striking, dramatic memories I have of this struggle, this, this, this push and pull when it came to, to the desire to fit in and the insecurities with all of that. Oddly enough, of all times, the first night that I spent as a freshman on the campus of Virginia Tech, my parents had dropped me off, I'm there with my roommate, and I'm, I'm a fairly new Christian, so I've got some rough idea as to, as to who I am, okay? And at the same time, there in that context, on that campus, that first night, as I find myself surrounded by all this, I'll just call it by crazy... I found it was quite striking, the the memory of it, the feelings of it. I I can still feel it, even as I'm describing it to you now. Just this, on the one hand, this pull to just blend in, to just go there. And yet, at the other time, other hand, knowing, no, that's that's not who you are. That's not why you're here. And at the same time, it was, it was this powerful, just this, this storm, a storm of, of very, very strong emotions. And, and the fact is, however you describe it, and whatever your experience with any of those kinds of things have ever been, the desire to, to fit in doesn't really go away. You know, deep down, all of us feel it and experience it in some way. It could be just with one other person. It could be with a crowd of people. Could be a school, could be at work, could be in your neighborhood, could be in the church. A whole lot of different possibilities. It doesn't really go away, it just morphs. It just morphs. If you've got a Bible, I'd ask you to turn with me to Psalm 120. We are beginning a, a the plan is a new series uh, through what are oftentimes referred to as the Song of Ascents. And uh, the first of those is, is this one. Psalm 120. I'll explain something of that uh, here in a little bit. But uh, if you're trying to find the Psalms, well, first off, it's on the screen. But if you're trying to find it there in the Bible, that you, ha- if you have one with you, I would just say simply this. Just let the heart of the Bible, let it be opened. That's the Psalms. Roughly the middle. Roughly the middle. Probably a little bit to the left in, the, in your Bible, but it's the heart of the Bible. Psalm 120 is where we are. It's, it's not long. None of these songs of ascents are terribly long. Verses 1 to 7, Psalm 120, hear now the word of God. In my distress, I called to the Lord, and He answered me, Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you, and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. Woe to me! that I sojourn in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. 
Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for these songs. And we thank you uh, for placing these songs of ascent here within the midst of the Psalter. And all these psalms we know, and these songs are no exception, are meant to guide us, to guide us in the expressions of our hearts, to shape us at the same time in the formation of our hearts, to know better what it is to be followers of our risen Savior, of the Son of David, the greater David, the psalmist himself, the singer of the psalms, you, Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for giving these to us, for singing them with us. Help us to know what it is to join in individually, together with you in this song. Ask that you would open up our eyes, that you would break up crusty, hard, errant assumptions as we come to the Word and correct us, reform us, transform us, we pray deeply. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, as I said, these are the songs of ascent, these 15, beginning in the 120 all the way up to 134. These are called the the songs of ascent. There's something of a theme in these songs, in the Psalms of Ascent, songs of ascent, of pilgrimage. That is to say, of a traveler who is moving towards a grand and glorious goal. Not there yet, but but moving on their way in transition. Okay? There's this theme. It's tapping into this grand theme of pilgrimage, movement traveling, that actually is a theme that you see throughout the Bible. I mean, think with me, Abraham, right? Abraham called out of Ur of the Chaldees. I mean, he is the father of the nation of Israel, really our own spiritual forefather when you think about it, because we are part of the Abrahamic covenant, okay, if we are followers of Jesus. So, Abraham was certainly a pilgrim, a traveler. You think in terms of just the heritage, the history of the nation as a whole, the post-Exodus experience, 40 years wandering in the wilderness before they came to the realization of the, of the promised land. And then once they arrive, there are these festivals, these feasts, three major ones. Once a year, they were commanded, the people were commanded to go, go back to Jerusalem to celebrate these festivals, these feasts, three times a year, these annual, annual festivals. So there they would go to the place, and it would seem that, from what we can tell, scholars have been able to discern, is that these songs, at some point, these 15, were gathered together in a collection. We don't know, actually, the original context in which any of them were written. We just know this. At some point, they were gathered together in a collection that we now know as the Songs of Ascent, and the purpose seems to have been that the pilgrims, the people of Israel, whether they're coming from the north, the south, the east, or the west, as they're moving towards Jerusalem, would sing these, would sing these as something, again, to express something of their hearts and at the same time to form something of their hearts as well as they're moving, as they're moving, moving to a familiar place, Jerusalem, the capital city. Moving to the temple, they're in the midst of the capital city. Moving with a sense of exile. 
moving with a sense of, 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 being, of, of alienation, of being strangers in a strange land, even in, in the midst of their own homeland, they're surrounded by, can I just put it this way, not to be derisive, but I'll just say pagan neighbors, peoples who do not share their deepest understanding of the deepest realities and their way of life, utter contrast to the peoples, the nations around them. So they're moving, yes, to this familiar place, but at the same time with a sense of alienation, they're moving as as exiles. Now, these songs, the original audience, of course, is God's people. God's people then, God's people now. Now, I recognize that may not be exactly where you are this morning, here in the room or watching there at home. There's something here for all of us. Please hear me. This may not be where you are in terms of a disciple of Jesus yet, except at the same time, there's something here. You're here, and you're listening, and you're curious, and you're exploring. There's something here for all of us in these songs, these songs of ascent. Now, I'm going to put a question directly to those of you who are Christians, who are followers of Jesus. Can you identify with the singers of these songs do you know what it feels like to have the sensation of being an exile? Do you, do, do you have that sense of alienation, of being a stranger in a strange land? You should because it's who you are. Did you catch what was read earlier from 1 Peter 2? How does the apostle Peter describe disciples of Jesus? none other as sojourners and exiles, right? Resident aliens, that's what we are. So if you have that sensation, if you, if you have that feeling sense of this is who I am and this is what's going on, well, there's a good reason for that because that's, that's exactly what's going on. That's exactly who you are. This isn't, knowing that, understanding that doesn't make it easy. It doesn't remove the pain. It doesn't remove the difficulty. It doesn't take away the struggle. But it helps to know. It helps to be able to begin with understanding something of the dynamics of who you are and where you are. But okay, so then how do we respond? What does it look like to live in exile? What does God's Word show us in regards to that very, very good question? Well, it's, Psalm 120 takes us in this direction. When we find ourselves feeling the burden of exile, we are to respond as exiles in a distinct way. When we feel the burden of living in exile, we must respond then as exiles in a distinct way. Let's unpack that. What would that look like? What would that mean to respond in a distinct way? I think the psalm takes us in this direction, these three points. If you printed out your outline, you've got it there in front of you. First, recognizing something of the dynamics of a life of a pilgrim, the life of a pilgrim. Secondly, the, the longing for peace that the pilgrim should feel. And then thirdly, what it then means to walk that path. So you probably picked on alliteration there. That was intentional. Pilgrim and peace and path. Let's look at these. Let's look at these in in turn. 
So first, the life of a pilgrim. The life of a pilgrim, the traveler, as we see here in Psalm 120 and all these psalms, is a life in tension. Now, tension, of course, means you've got one side and another side, at least, pulling at one another. And if you let go of one, you don't, not only do you not have the tension, but in this case, you've lost sight of, of the whole, the whole picture. It's not one, it's not the other, it's, it's both. We are called as pilgrims to, on the one hand, to live as people who are distinct but not despising. To be set apart but not sanctimonious. To be purposeful but without being prudish. You see that here. You see that it's implied with the, the, the wording, the heart of this psalm. So on the one hand, on the one hand, we are to make this our home, and yet at the same time, without being at home. That's the tension. We're to make this our home, and yet at the same time, without being at home. So making this our home. Jeremiah 29, we read that earlier. The letter from Jeremiah to the exiles, so he's back in Jerusalem, to the exiles in Babylon. By the way, they didn't go there by choice. They were ripped away. This is, exile is like a really kind way to put that. These are refugees is what they are, okay? They are refugees there in Babylon. And the Lord, speaking through Jeremiah, tells them, He reminds them of His providence. Can I use that term? Of His rule, His reign, His control over everything. He reminds them of who He is and who actually is behind everything that they are experiencing. He is the who behind their where and their what. It is no accident that they find themselves there in exile in Babylon, right there in that short letter. You heard that just a little while ago, read from Jeremiah 29. And His providence, His control, His rule is meant to there in shape and drive their contentment. They're being at peace even in the midst of being in exile. And He tells them quite clearly, okay, with this in mind, you're to settle in. You are to make this your home. You are to love and to serve the people around you. You are to pray for and seek towards their good. Or in New Testament language, salt and light, a city on a hill. That's what you're to be there in that place. You're to make this your home. That's the one side of the tension. Now I'm going to put the, here's the other side of the rubber band. Make this your home without being at home. Psalm 120, verse 5, makes this pretty clear, uh, recognizing the hard place. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. And you're wondering, where are those places? Glad you asked. Meshech is far to the north in what we would call now modern-day Turkey. Kedar is Arabia, way down to the south. Now, he's obviously not literally living in both places at the same time. That's a geographical impossibility. What he's speaking towards is this reality of the fact that he is dwelling, he is an alien, he is a stranger, he is a foreigner in a place that he knows not who know him not. In fact, frankly, amidst the people that that in those days were quite hostile and implacable. Now, this is a hard place, a hard place that he finds himself. And how does, does the psalmist pray? 
thanks. No. Woe to me. Implied, how long? How long do I have to be here? How long must I, li- must I live in the midst of Meshach and Kedar? It's this, you see, it's not one side or the other. It's both, di- it's both this dynamic, both parts would make the dynamic. It's both parts of the prayer. On the one hand, Lord, make me a blessing in this place that you've called to make my home, called me to make my home, and at the same time, woe to me. And it's not one or it's not the other, it's both. And it's nowhere but in Holy Scripture, the Word of God Himself given to us His people, that He says, pray like this. Pray with this tension. Live in this tension. And pray accordingly. Pray accordingly. Jesus speaks in in many ways. I alluded to this already. Matthew chapter 5 and the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Matthew 5 and the the Sermon on the Mount uh, following... The Beatitudes, uh, very familiar words to some of you, no doubt. Uh, Just going to read one verse here, Matthew 5, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So there's this amazing assurance that Jesus is giving here. On the one hand, he, he is saying that, look, as you live this beatitudinal life, now that's verses 1 to 12 in chapter 5, as you live in this way, this, this way that's completely different than your inclinations and the people around you, okay, you live in this way, you will be salt. You will have a preserving effect in a dying, decaying world, okay? That's the assurance. It's astonishing. It's amazing. And you think realizing something of that could be true of you and me and together as a community, okay? That's the assurance. That's the promise. And then there's this warning. There's this caveat. If you let yourself be corrupted, your mission and your calling will be compromised. And to the degree that you let that happen, it will fail. You see, it's that tension. It's not one. It's not the other. It's both. Elsewhere in the New Testament, we get this theme that comes out again and again. We are to be in the world, but not of the world. In the world, but not of the world. Now, the in part refers to location, where you are in the midst of the people around you, your coworkers, your neighbors, your friends, your family members. That's where you are, in it, in it but not of it, but not of it. And that's not a, refer, a reference back to location. That's a reference back to loyalty, your heart condition, your heart's allegiance, not where you are, but where you're from and where you're going. We're called to be both in the world, but not of this world. Friends, we are, know this, put it on your mirror if you have to, Resident alien, royal exile, that's us. That's us. As followers of the living Jesus, we are exiles. And when we feel that burden of exile, 
he's making clear that we are to respond as exiles in a distinct way. Now, that takes us into the second point. Not just the life of the pilgrim and and the dynamics, the tension of that, but the conflict that the pilgrim faces. The longing for peace, not just the tension, but the conflict that comes inevitably with that. What sets us apart? What sets us apart inevitably brings conflict in this world. Inevitably. So, in the, in the opening verses of the psalm, you hear the psalmist cry. He speaks of, he's in distress. He cries out for deliverance. Are things going well when you cry out for such ways? Probably not. And then you read down towards the end, verses 6 and 7, too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. Now, you see here, not, again, not just now tension, we're talking conflict, two opposing sides that are unable ultimately to hold hands because of different allegiances and loyalties. So on the one hand, the psalmist says, I am for peace. Now that word peace there is the Hebrew word shalom, which is far richer, far more significant than just an absence of conflict. Shalom and the right understanding of that word means a fittedness, a rightness, a, a beauty, a harmony, a, a deep abiding sense of the way things are supposed to be. And we're made for that. Shalom. Shalom. Uh, literally, the, uh, the psalmist says, I, sh- I peace, I shalom. The translators stick a verb in there just to kind of make it read better. But literally, I mean, it's I peace. So deep is his desire, so profound is his longing for shalom, for God's kingdom to be manifested, his rule to, be, to come down and be manifested in his own life, in the lives of the people around him, and everywhere he looks, like the Lord's prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done. Shalom, shalom. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Shalom, shalom. This is his heart's burden, that God's ways, God's plans, God's purposes would be realized in his life and in this this world. I am for peace, he says, but they are for war. I am for peace, but they are for war. You see this there in verses 2 through 4. He says it, of course, in verse 7, but it's manifested in verses 2 to 4. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips. From a deceitful tongue, what shall be given to you, and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? This is the Lord's pronouncement of judgment. A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. Now, it would seem at the very least personal, interpersonal conflict is being alluded to to here. That lips and tongue that have been given by instruments of God meant to bless and to build up are rather being misused, given over to slander and lies and injurious speech. And just as a quick aside, friends, speech can do that. We are made in the image and according to the likeness of a speaking God. What, how did He make, how did creation come into being? He spoke it into being. Speech, made in the image, 
and the likeness of a speaking God is a powerful thing. To bless and build up or hurt and harm. So this, this aspect of that here, possibly at the very least, this personal conflict that we see here, but that seems to be actually the symptom of something deeper. The personal conflict that he is feeling, the pushback that he is feeling, the antagonism that he is experiencing is a symptom, not just of, it's not just personal conflict, but of cultural conflict. He finds himself in the midst of not just lying not lying tongues, but lying ideas, destructive ideas. And we know something of that in our own day where the problems are misidentified and therein the solutions are misidentified and we're told that our problems and solutions have to do with politics. Well, guess what? Your Savior never comes on Air Force One, blue or red. We don't worship donkey, elephant. We worship a lamb. We're told that the problems and the solution is political, or perhaps it's economic, or perhaps it's in the right understanding of the groupings of people and the power dynamics therein. Look, those things are, are part of the discussion, but they are not the foundation. Those are not the foundational issues. And to the degree that we buy into lying ideas, here's what we're going to experience, this horrible dynamic, this horrible reality, this horrible truth. Damaged doctrine, damaged ideas, damages people. The psalmist is crying out, I am for peace. Shalom. Shalom amidst a people who want war. Let's think for a minute about time management. I'm going somewhere with this. Hang on. Time management, which actually is really better described most often as if you really want to do time management, you need to talk about self-management. And here's a little axiom. Whatever you want to say yes to, ultimately, as a causation you are having to say no to something else, right? Typically, typically. You know, if you've, got a, any, anything, if you've got much else on your plate and your schedule, in order to say yes to one thing, therein by necessity, you have to say no to some other things simply because you don't have an infinity of time within a given day and a given week, right? So the yes and the no, whatever they are, are competing over limited airspace, all right? It's something like that with the Christian worldview. Believe it or not, when you think about it, it's something like that in the exclusivity of the Christian worldview because you can't believe but so many things at the same time. See, the Christian world and life view tells us truth, true truth, as Francis Schaeffer used to say, true truth about where we come from, why we're here, what's gone wrong, and how it can be fixed. 
Now, those in the great marketplace of ideas are exclusive truth claims. That's offensive in today's marketplace of ideas, and we don't need to be offensive about saying that any more so than we have to be, but just know that that's going to be offensive. But the reality is, just like with self-management, you can't do everything at the same time, when it comes to worldviews, you can't believe everything at the same time. There are some realities, some truth claims that simply will not mesh. They don't fit together. They don't fit together. That's what it means for us to understand something of what it means to, to, for us today to live in Meshech or Kedar, to have hearts that long for shalom but recognize that that's not really where everybody around us is. And perhaps a way we could put that is they are for war. It's hard to grapple with, I recognize that, and, and maybe that puts you at odds with people that you care for greatly, but we've got to reckon with these things. The reality of the conflict that comes for the pilgrim, for the exile, for the stranger in the strange land, for the traveler, for the sojourner, as we're making our way home. As we feel that burden, that burden of exile, how do we respond as exiles in a distinct way? That takes us even further into this, the third and final point. So not just uh, thinking in terms of um, uh, the, the pilgrim way, the pilgrim life, and the longing for peace or the tension and the conflict, but now thinking about the journey, walking the path, What holds our gaze? What occupies our attention as we set out on this, on this journey? A vision towards of what? Where do we take our cues from, if I can put it that way? We find ourselves feeling that burden of exile. Where do we take our cues from? Where we are? Meshech or Kadar? Or where we're going? Do we have an eye towards the customs of this place or the customs of that place? There's a contrast there, a very stark contrast, especially when you think in terms of how to respond to hostility and opposition and pushback. Now, the customs of this place, of Meshach and Kadar, our own present day, Meshach and Kadar would say, look, you get pushback, you, you have difficulty well, then you probably need to compromise. You probably need to soften your position. You probably need to dial it down. You probably need to blend in. How important is this stuff, these eternal truth claims? Isn't everybody right? I mean, just, you know, the grand muddling middle. That would be one, to compromise. That would be the one cue that we get from the place in which we are, the customs of the place in which we live. The other which sounds completely the opposite, but it's almost identical when you think about the heart of it, is not to compromise, but to retaliate, to trade blow for blow, to speak and respond in kind, to mock, to insult, to belittle, to not even bother 
to engage with people as people and their concerns and their ideas, but just treat them as an enemy, as an object, as a problem. That's part of the customs of where we live. Both, both are the customs of this Meshech and this Kadar, compromise and retaliation. Where are we taking our cues from? It ought not to be where we are, but where we're going. Not the customs of this place, but the customs of that place, the customs of a land and a king who is coming to take back everything that is his. And if we indeed are his citizens, then that ought to mean something. And you see that here in this psalm. It's so easy to miss the obvious. What is this psalm? It's a prayer. So immediately we know something right off the bat in terms of how to respond as an exile. And what does it mean to respond as an exile when we're under the burden of being in exile and responding in a distinct way? Immediately we can see right here from the start with just what this is. Immediately we know we have to begin with leaning on the Lord with leaning and depending upon Him, crying out to Him, which ultimately is looking to Jesus, the Prince of Peace, who went through the worst of conflict, the deepest of conflict, to bring us peace, to bring us shalom. So He alone is the one that we can lean into and look towards to know and understand and help as He has gone through exile for us to take us home. That's the path in which we're on. That's where our eyes have to be set. That's what it, it's, it's what it means to take our cues, not from where we are, but from where we're going. That's what it means for us to live the life of the exile. So think of the Amish for a minute, okay? So the stereotype, most likely if I did a little quick survey, this is probably, you know, give me three things you think of with Amish. Here's what you're probably going to get. Bearded men with dark hats riding a horse and buggy on rural roads who don't want anything to do with modern conveniences, right? That's probably what you you think, right? Okay. Well, there's actually a bit more to the Amish than just that. You really can't sustain a culture if that's all you are, okay? That's surfacy stuff that manifests itself out of this idea. Their approach can be well described this way, as humane technology, Humane technology, which means, which means that when someone within a community wants to introduce some, something new, some new technology, some new tool, some new gadget, some new device, whatever it is, then the, the, as a community and as families, they get together and talk through and pray through what will the impact of this new thing be upon our family and upon our community. Now, how many of you wish you'd done that before you brought smartphones into the house? get the amen from the parents on that one. All right. So, while on the one hand, their customs may seem really strange and bizarre at times to us, typically there's a consistency that's driving that, and it's this concept of humane technology, however strange or odd you may find it to be, okay? Now, transpose that over to the life of any true Christian and what ought to be true of us. A few weeks ago, we were looking at the church in Syrian Antioch in Acts 11, the first place where followers of Jesus were called Christians, 
we call that Christians today. Why were they called that? They didn't take, they did not assume that title upon themselves. Again, it was because the outside world saw where their heart's allegiance was, to whom? Who had their heart's allegiance? Who did they follow? And they could see it was Jesus. They may not have agreed with it, they may not have understood it, but they recognized that heart's loyalty and allegiance and loyalty to Him formed everything about this community. And that's why they were called what they were. It shaped everything. It had massive implications in terms of how they did community, of what they understood true mercy to be, of of, um, relationships and money and finances and power and outreach and how to handle conflict and how to handle pressure from the outside world to conform. They could see these people are different. You know why? Because they recognize themselves to be aliens and strangers, royal resident exiles. And it's the same for us. Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. Now think with me just for a moment. I've got to wrap this up, but think with me just for a moment of the opportunities before us today in our context. In our polarized, politicized society, think of the opportunities we have to speak and do differently. Think of the opportunities before us as the people of God in this cynical, secular world to speak and do differently, to do life differently, because it is different, because it's true. As we strive to be salt and light, living that beatitudinal life amidst a dying, dark world here in Meshach and Kadar as sojourners and travelers, as pilgrims. So with the burden of the exile, oh, my friends, we have to respond as exiles in a distinct way. And let me just end with this clarifier. I keep saying when we feel the burden of exile. You know what I didn't say if. There was some intentionality with that. Because there is an inevitability to that. Absolute inevitability. We're not talking about a possibility. We're talking about a certainty. A certainty that we will feel as exiles. But praise God, that certainty is not forever. That certainty of feeling like a pilgrim and an exile and an alien in this world is, is certain, but it is not forever. I've had this old song in my head, I'm going to do you good and not sing it, um, this, this, this stanza though. Some of you may recognize it. I think it's from 1912-ish or so. Uh, this world is not my home. I'm a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door, and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. Now, I will tell you, I hesitate to quote that to you, not just sing it to you, but actually to even quote it to you. And here's the reason why I hesitate, because that song sadly can convey an image of an ethereal afterlife lived on a cloud, which is actually not at all what the Bible tells us we should be expecting when it comes to our eternal destiny. 
we should be expecting a new heavens and a new earth. That is to say, made new. This earth made new. So there's a sense in which actually the song is completely wrong. There's a sense in which you can say, no, this is my home. It's just not my home yet. But I quote the song because it's so jarring and it makes a point. We're not home yet. Home's coming. Home is coming, and this world is going to be made new. But for now, we are exiles. And what are exiles to do when they feel the burden, the burden of exile? To live as exiles in a distinct way. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for these songs of ascent. Thank you that you give us the opportunity to listen in to our pilgrim forebearers as they made their way to the temple. Thank you for the opportunity for us to listen in and to learn from these words. And we pray for your blessing upon this series, for what we've already begun to explore with this first of the Psalms. Help us to know what it means to live a life of exile. We ask that you'd help us to live in the tension to make this our home, but not to be at home. We ask that you would help us to recognize the reality, the sure, certain reality of the conflict that will come because of conflicting worldviews and ways of understanding what is true and what is not and what is real and what is not. We ask that you'd help us in the midst of all that to lean into and look exclusively to you for our wisdom for our strength, for our ability to follow You. And You clearly intend for us to do this in community. These are not solos. These are choruses that were sung. We live in a strange time. We live in a strange time. I ask that you'd help us to steward it well and to do it together. Have mercy, Lord Jesus. Amen.